Welcome. Hello. I'm Craig. I thought I liked fall until this week. It's so cold. Do you know we, we, live, in a, we live in a world where we're way too comfortable with, with this. It's the air we breathe. It's this thing we live in and we're way too comfortable with it. And me even pointing it out just feels kind of like, oh yeah. Someone else has pointed that out before. Here's another person railing against it. But we're going to try. We're going to try to push back on it. Where there is a different way of doing things. And I really believe we can experience that different way of doing things. But we live in a world where we're way too comfortable with a transactional way of being. We're way too comfortable with buy and sell. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't bother us at all. That the people, the folks who know us better, probably than we know ourselves, it doesn't bother us at all. The only reason these folks spend so much money tracking our every move and studying us religiously are to make money off of us. Apple, Meta, Google, know you better than you know yourselves. You're like, yeah, so what? They're just trying to make money off us. Yeah, that's the world we live in. We live in a transactional world, a buy and sell world. And that's just not with like our phones. That's almost in everything we do. Gifts. The holidays are almost upon us. And some of you are getting panic attacks because there's somebody that's going to get you a gift. And it's like, oh, great, I didn't think of them. Now I got to give them a gift. What is that? That's not relational. That's not, oh, wow, that was so thoughtful. I just received that. Thank you. I, that's awesome. It's transactional. Now I got to get them something. I have somebody in my family who, upon receiving a gift, will whip out their phone, open a Google spreadsheet, and note the gift the estimated cost of that gift and when it was given. Why? Because now they owe me a gift of equal or like value. That's a, I mean, that's, that's not my, I'm not, I don't say that to them. They just pick that up on themselves. So you're like, man, it's not fun to get Craig gifts. They do that. Because we live in a transactional world. Even, even in like little things in our day. Waving. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in a different part of the country. We don't wave to everybody where I grew up. All right? Like everywhere I go here, it's just like, like I don't know you. I'm just walking. Like, why are you waving at me? Like, what? We don't, we don't know each other. But I get transactional, right? Like, oh, no, they waved. I got I to gotta return back. I got If I don't, I didn't do the transaction right. And, and living in a transactional world is very results-based. There are two humongous entrepreneurs in the United States. One we think of as a hero, and one we think of as a villain. The Vanderbilts. Cornelius Vanderbilt. He built a railroad empire. And when asked by a colleague about the empire that he built, his response, someone asked him, do you know how many laws you broke to build all these railroad tracks? And he said, do you think you can be in the railroad business without breaking laws? And we kind of chuckled at it, like, ha ha, this rich guy broke a lot of laws. That's silly. And then Enron, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Enron, they were super bad. They defrauded people and broke a lot of laws. But Vanderbilt is a good guy because he got results. And they're bad guys because they got caught. Oh, transactions. And what comes with transactions? Results. 
We live in a buy and sell world and it doesn't even bother us anymore. Then it gets very dangerous because we bring that transactional way of being to church. We bring a transactional mindset to our relationship with God. Everything we know is buy and sell. And now we think of our relationship with God as transactional. What does God want? Now what do I need to deliver? When you have a relationship like that with someone, the relationship is not central. What you get is central. Uh, uh, Judge Ito, you may, I think his name is Lance Ito. You might recognize the name. He was made famous by The Tonight Show, Dancing Judge Ito. He had a famous trial in 1992. It made the news because there was a former Heisman Trophy winner who was on trial for killing his ex-wife and his, her boyfriend, OJ. And he got acquitted. And do you know what happened between Judge Ito and OJ Simpson after the trial? Nothing. They did not become friends because it wasn't about relationship. A judge declared a sentence and the defendant got to walk free. I mean, a bad sentence, but too soon. (laughs) Also, we live in such a transactional world. Judge Ito was celebrated because he didn't, quote, go Hollywood. What does that mean? Everybody involved in the O.J. Simpson trial cashed in their, like, 15 minutes of fame check. They wrote books. If there was Dancing with the Stars, they probably would have gone on it. They all tried to, like, live in the limelight because that's what you do in a transactional environment. You have a moment, you've got to take it because no one's looking out for you. You've got to do it. And we celebrate a judge who didn't do that. Like, yeah, that's so great of him. It's like, what is it? But we're just so used to living in a transactional environment. And then when it comes to our relationship with God, we bring that whole way of being to him. What does God want? Probably me to be better behaved. How do I do that? I just got to try really hard, I guess. Well, what happens when we fail? I feel terrible, but thank goodness there's the cross. And we treat the cross like mom and dad's debit card. We use it, and then when it runs out, we got to go back, and we got to be nice, and we got to be genuine, and they'll put money on it, and then we're good to go for a little bit. That transactional way of being comes in large part because of the appropriate ways we talk about the cross. We talk about it like a judge and defendant. God is a holy judge and we have broken his laws. And that's true. I'm not trying to minimize that. And it's not the whole story. Because it, just like it's not appropriate for O.J. Simpson to love the judge that acquitted him, it, it, in that same way, it'd be weird if we just loved, God's like not guilty, we're like we love you, we want to be with you. That's not what you do with a judge. Might there be something more happening on the cross than just a transaction. We've been in a series called The Shared Life in the Gospel of John. And what we're saying is that on on the cross, Jesus offers us this thing called the shared life. What's the shared life? What gives you life gives me life. What brings you pain brings me pain. 
the cross is not a symbol of a transactional relationship with God. The cross is a symbol of the shared life. Jesus literally gives his life, shares his life with us and makes us alive. What brought him pain is counted on our behalf as death. He experiences separation from the father and is brought back to new life and invites us into a relationship, a shared life. We're going to read a passage that where Jesus says, if you want to really experience life, you've got to experience the cross. You've got to experience the shared life I'm offering. You have to receive. It's not about the transacting. It's not about what do I need to do? That's religion. And Jesus pushes back on that. He's talking to a group of people. Who they, they're asking God, God, we've been trying to have a transactional relationship with you from the beginning. Would you please just make that work? We, we, like, we like the relationship where we come to you when our debit card needs loading and you load it up for us. We like that. Can you make that work? And Jesus says, I'm actually here to offer you something different. I'm here to offer you myself. Oneness with God. He shares life with the Father and the Spirit. And he says this, just like I share life with the Godhead, you share life with me. Instead of this treadmill of sin and shame and guilt, repeat, live, die, repeat, we get invited into the shared life, the relationship God has with himself. We now partake in. That's an invitation to something way bigger than a treadmill. That's an invitation into something, an attachment love of Jesus that he shares his life with us. We're going to read this passage. It's long. It's 30 verses. But, you know, you sat through two hours of terrible football yesterday, so you you can sit through this. I believe you. They deserve to lose. They deserve to lose. That was terrible. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I watch Mizzou to be one of us. We're Missourians now. Buckeyes, where's that? Ohio, oh, I'll let you, you get to live with that. You, you get to live with like, I'll, I, this is a mean fan base. Don't cross them, they, you, know, you get to live with that. Jesus makes an invitation to us and the invitation is receive what I'm offering. I've done something for you that you could never do for yourself. Receive, there's no transaction here. It's a gift. We struggle with that. Like, whoa. But he makes it in language that's also kind of confusing. Here's how the language he makes it. It confuses the original audience and it confuses us. Here's what he says. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the folks were like, well, that's weird. What's he talking about? And today, a lot of people read this. They're like, ah, what's he talking about? Is this like communion? So like, you know, drinking the, the bread and the wine, like we have to do that to be saved? Like what's Jesus talking about? Well, the language of eat my flesh and drink my blood, is actually, it, it, it lines up with the story of Israel. So if you know anything about the Old Testament law, drinking of blood, purely forbidden. We don't drink blood. We go through all these laws to get blood out of animals. So we're not going to do it. So Jesus is not encouraging literal cannibalism here. What he's talking about is receiving his death for them. Where do I get this? There's a story in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, about the death. Uh, King David at the end of his life. He's died and as his eulogy they're, they're kind of celebrating some big things about his life. And they tell a story 
about how when Bethlehem was under Philistine uh, conquest, the Philistines had come in and they, sieged, they besieged Bethlehem. And so David is out with all his warriors and he's like, man, I really would love some water from a Bethlehem well. And some of us are like, what? Like, not the time, bro. But that's kind of like being from the East Coast and living in Missouri and just, you just crave Wawa. And anybody who's ever been to a Wawa is like, that's a gas station. Like, what in the world? But I don't make the rules. I don't make the rules. People from Pennsylvania, Jersey, they just love their Wawa. It's kind of like being in New York City, like the birthplace of real pizza. And just being like, you know what? I just need Shakespeare's. And that's what David's going through. He's, his home is besieged. It's behind enemy lines and he's missing it. So his mighty men are like, we got you, bro. And they go behind enemy lines and they get in water from a well in Bethlehem. Wow! What does David do? It says he turns and faces the presence of the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, he pours the water out. What? They just like risk their lives. That's super dangerous. This is terrible. Why did he do that? 2 Samuel 23, 17. Here's what he says to the Lord. Far be it from me to do this. He said, is it not the blood of men who went at risk of their lives and David would not drink it? What's the blood of men? He says, this, this water that they gave me, is this not the blood of men? They sacrificed, they risked for my good. I can't, I can't partake in this. And Jesus is saying this, unless you drink my blood, unless you receive this sacrifice, unless you, unless you let me care for you, at great cost to myself, you won't know the Father. That is both good news for those of us in a transactional world. Oh, and it's hard news. And the crowd receives it as such. Many leave, but some don't. This morning, when you came to church, you were welcomed by a cross. Outside the building, there's a giant cross on the building to welcome everyone who enters. This is how we come. This is how we enter, through the cross. The cross is not a symbol of our transactional relationship with God. The cross is a symbol of our shared life. That at great cost to himself, Jesus did for us what we could never do. And he's saying, this is how you abide. You abide by receiving. And that's really good news for us transactional folks, but we're going to see how. How is that good news for us transactional folks? Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. The cross both embodies and establishes the shared life. How is that good news for us? John chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 41 to 71. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, verses 41. Here we go. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, just a quick comment. Uh, when John uses the word the Jews, he's not talking about a whole group of people. He's talking about the religious leaders. It's going to be clear later why he's using that language, though. They, that's the religious leaders, said, Is not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, uh, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we need help getting off of a treadmill. It's a tempting treadmill. It has a beautiful cause and effect, but it's not serving us anymore. God, I pray that we would treat you as you are inviting us to treat you. That we would receive, that we would enter into this relationship, we would experience the shared life regardless of if we met you years ago or we are yet to meet you. God, I pray that we would live into what you're inviting us in John chapter 6. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It is very tempting and it is very easy for us to talk about change, but then when change actually starts happening, we're like, ah, let's go back to what we know. So we talk about, oh man, 
I really don't want to, I don't want to do this like that. And then we start and then, oh, it's not what I thought I would. And so we go right back into what we know. That's who Jesus is talking to. The religious leaders at the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus starts talking to them. And in the previous two weeks, what we've been talking about, how he's offering them the shared life. How he's saying how we can relate to God is deeply relational, not transactional. Let's relate to God in a way that is connected to the shared life, that he's offering us union. Like Jesus, this amazing statement that Jesus makes in uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. The verse 67, 57. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. He's saying the type of relationship I have to God the Father, you can have with God the Son, with me, and by extension, the whole Trinity. That's amazing. He's offering us a relationship, a way of being, union, connection, not isolation from God, not a distance, but being right there with God. A bragging point for Jesus. It's in John chapter one, and we also read it here. Is that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from the Father. It's John six forty six. It's also in John chapter one. Jesus is saying this, I have a unique relationship to God the Father. Nobody's seen him except me. That was a bragging point for him. He loved telling people that. I have a special relationship to the Father. And now he offers us that through the cross. And the only way for us to experience it is not through our effort. It's not through trying really hard. It's through receiving. It's through eating his flesh, drinking his blood. A metaphor Jesus is saying, receive what I've done. I went behind enemy lines. On the cross, I leave God's presence to bring you into God's presence. And that changes your identity. See, a transactional mindset for a lot of us is driven by this medieval psychology. You didn't know you had a medieval psychology, I bet. Well, a lot of us, I mean, this just, we just hand this out like lollipops at church. A medieval psychology says this. It says that if we have truth plus better decisions plus willpower, we will see transformation. Truth. What can be more true than the Bible? We need more Bible verses. Plus um, better decisions. You need to apply what you just learned. Plus willpower. It gets hard. Try harder. You'll experience transformation. That sounds good. It's affirming a high view of scripture, which we have. And it's saying like we have responsibility in this. Oh my goodness, that sounds great. Only problem, it's not how the Bible describes transformation. And it leads us to just a treadmill of guilt and sin and shame. Guilt and sin and shame. And if you have any wonderings about that, just go to a small group of college-aged men who are talking about their struggle with porn. It is just a treadmill of like, hey, how was your week, Scott? Oh, it wasn't a good week. Oh, like last week? Yeah, really bad. Oh, that's terrible. Well, here's some verses. And try harder next week. Okay. And, just, and then it's the same thing, just this treadmill. And a lot of people think that treadmill of like, oh, I sin. Oh, I got to go back to the cross. And oh, a lot of people think that is the Christian life. And man, the Christian life is really hard and you feel really bad a lot. There is another way. 
Jesus' original audience was treating, was doing just what we do. They come to Jesus, look what it says in verse 41. This is why John uses the phrase the Jews. Verse 41, at this time the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. That sounds an awful lot like the book of Numbers. When the Israelites, the Jews, were asking God for bread. And they gave bread and they're like, no, we don't like this. And they were grumbling. See, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings were totally fresh on their mind. John reminds us earlier in the chapter, this is Passover. And so they had the exodus on their brain. The exodus celebrates Passover. They had the wilderness wanderings. And what Jesus is saying to this group of people is you're just reenacting that. You're talking about you want change. You're in exile. You want God to rescue you. You want something else. But you slide right back into trying what you've always done. So many of us do that in our relationship with God. And the result is that we experience one year of growth over and over and over again. And so if you've been a Christian for 40 years, instead of being like a 40-year-old mature Christian, you're a one-year-old mature Christian 40 times over. There is another way. Would it surprise you to learn that's not actually the way of Jesus? Listen to some of the phrases Jesus says here. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. It's like earlier back in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks this will never thirst. I, I feel bad and then I'm exhausted. I'm not trying to minimize guilt and shame. That's a real thing we all experience. That's very real. But our method for experiencing transformation, our formula for growth is broken. It's not from the Bible too. It's also from the medieval period. That's why I called it medieval psychology. If you read uh, a lot of like the church fathers, nobody really talked about our will until the medieval period. The focus was on God's will. And then coming of the scholastics and humanism in the medieval period, we made everything about bending our will to God's will. And so now it became, I got to get my will in line with God's will. I got to try really hard. That's not how Paul and Jesus talked about growth. Their formula for growth was this. Identity plus belonging equals transformation. It's not truth plus willpower plus better choices. It's identity and it's belonging. How do you see growth in your life? How do you see transformation? God gives us a new identity and tells us we belong. If you think, which a lot of us do, this is, again, we, we handed this out like lollipops. If you think, no, 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 I really want to, I think the whole truth and better decisions thing works. I just invite you to just get into an argument with someone about politics and let me know how truth and better decisions worked in that argument. I invite you to find a teenager who is just making a dumpster fire out of their life. Like they just start, just one bad decision after another bad decision after another bad decision and just give them more truth. I just, just let me know how it goes. As a pastor, when people come into my office, the fastest way to get them out of my office is to just give them lots of truth in their suffering. That does not minimize truth. We're not relativists around here. The, you know, my soul clings to death. Give me life according to your word. That, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. We're not minimizing that. But it's, it's, it's a Western mistake to think if we just have the right facts and make the right decisions, we're going to experience transformation. If that were true, Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers would go out of business. It's because we don't change by better facts. 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and now he's offering us his flesh. The word did not become facts and dwell among us. Jesus entered our story, and he gives us a new way of being. And the question to this audience was, do you want to get out of the transactional way of relating to God? And what's their response? Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now just for clarity's sake, when the Bible uses the phrase the disciples of Jesus, it's, it's referring to just a large number of just swaths of people who are following him. It's not the twelve. We can tell because later in this passage, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you also leave me? There were a lot of disciples following Jesus who were like, whoa. We didn't know, we wanted change. We wanted to do, we wanted to get out of exile, but we don't want to do it this way. See, the transactional life is comfortable because God is controllable. As long as I stay in line, God will stay in line. You can see this when we, we, when we rage at God. God, how could you do this? I, fill in the blank. That is a transactional way of relating to God. And Jesus devastates us by saying, hey, I actually have connection to the Father. And if you want to connect to God via via transactions, you're disconnected. You're disconnected from the Father. That's what he says with a verse that we get very tripped up about. When he says this, uh, verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. The, uh, oh, he, only he has seen the Father. So he's saying this, I'm truly connected to God, okay? And then, what do they, and then what do he say to them? Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. He's, the, it's the shared life. The one who gives him life is working He's deeply connected to the Father. They're saying they're connected. He's like, oh no, if you were connected, you'd receive me. The only way to experience connection with God is through the cross. The only way to experience union, this shared life with Jesus, is through receiving. You may be a wonderful person. You may be a better person than I am. You may be a better better parent than I am. You may be a better neighbor than I am. You're probably a better neighbor than I am. I'm like a very mediocre neighbor. But we're not saved by being good neighbors. We're not saved by being good parents. We're not saved by being good people. We are saved because God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the only way to experience that connection is through the shared life. Now, we get tripped up because of what Jesus just said in John 6, 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And we're like, oh my gosh. Why is Jesus talking about Calvinism and Arminianism? And if you don't know what that is, you're so blessed. Jesus is not communicating this to say, let's have a conversation about human free will and God's sovereignty. John doesn't seem to feel any tension. He can just throw those out there. Anyone who wants can come, and you come because you're drawn. And we're like, ah, how do we reconcile that? And John's like, just hold them. Just hold them. What Jesus is trying to communicate is this, that the shared life starts when we want to be with Jesus. This is meant to be good news for our souls. Do we want to experience God's presence? That's because God the Father is already working on us. 
No one comes unless God draws. And you know what that does? That changes our identity. We are someone who God works on. He hasn't abandoned us. He's attracting us to his presence. That's maybe a better word when it says no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. The idea of attracting. If being in God's presence, if being known by God, if being with him is attractive to you, it's because God's working on you. That's an identity statement. You're not somebody who is far away from God. You're someone he's working on. He didn't even know that. That's grace. That's amazing. That does not minimize or do away with your free will. You're a free person. You have a high degree of agency. And we see God is doing for me what I could never do for myself. He's offering me this shared life. And what's the response of some of the disciples? We like the transactional life. It says many said this is a hard teaching and stopped walking with Jesus. I'm like, what? How can they do that? It's because the shared life is dangerous. We lose our sense of control. It's kind of a lot like love. When you fall in love with someone, you're like, we're going to be in love and we're going to live together forever, but it's got to look like this. It's like, well, you know what? I like the Can we just stay with that? The other reason it's hard is because we don't live in a world where this is common at all. That transactional world that we describe, we're so used to living it. It can be really hard to even say we have needs in that world. Gabor Mate, he's a controversial MD, but before he was a, a famous psychiatrist, he was actually involved in palliative care, walking with people um, in the last days of their life. And he described a patient that he had. It was a woman who had breast cancer. And she was nearing the end of her life and she was having a hard time saying what she wanted the end of her life to look like. And so Mate starts talking to her. And he asks to hear her story. And it's an incredibly tragic story of someone who just got bulldozed by a transactional life. She grew up with three sisters and she grew up in a home realizing, what's my role in this home? Well, I've got to be the one that takes care of everybody. My parents like my two sisters more than me. They're pretty, they're popular, I'm the plain one. Okay, her mom died at a young age. And so she filled the role of surrogate mom, having to take care of her older sisters, having to be like an emotional support for her dad in ways that were wildly inappropriate. Mate described that she's telling him stories about how her dad is dating all these other women and they're coming into like uh, physical frustrations, we'll say. Dad comes home physically frustrated from relational tensions of a physical sort with these ladies and he starts sharing that with his teenage daughter. Saying, ah, oh, my girlfriend, this is so frustrating, what's going on? And, and she's crying as she's sharing this. This is harm. Like, I, I need you to be my dad. I don't need you to do this for me. And Mate, in a non-judgmental way, says, well, did you, did you say anything? Did you tell him to stop? This isn't appropriate. No, I, I can't do that. Why? Well, he wouldn't have liked it. It would have made him feel bad. She has to be something that other people need. She can't even say her own needs. That's how we live in transactional world. I can't be me because what if you walk away and then I lose what I need? There's no relationship here. She had one marriage that was just awful, an abusive boyfriend. He leaves. She ends up getting breast cancer. 
At this point, her father is older and needs care himself. Where do the two older siblings go? To the beach. Who has to take care of dad? Her. She's going through chemotherapy for cancer and she hears a knock on her door one day, just this kind of demanding knock. She opens the door. She's exhausted. As many of you know who've been through chemotherapy, she's totally drained. She comes to the door just physically exhausted and her dad answers the door and it's like, all right, here's what we need to do. Today, I need you to go to the grocery store. I need to, oh my gosh, put on a wig. Gross. Someone who's supposed to be a caregiver for her needs care from her and now also is being emotionally harsh and we can say abusive. That feels like the world we live in. And then when we say, oh, no, no, the, the cross is something else, we're like, yeah, we'll see. At the end of her life, Mate, at the end of her story, Mate sits with her and says, man, that's really hard. It sounds like nobody was really there for you and you had to be there for everybody else. She said, yeah. He said, well, now that it's the end of your life, what do you want the end of your life to look like? She said, no, no, no. I can't think like that. He said, well, why? He said, well, my dad wouldn't like it. Others just wouldn't like it. He said, I think now's the time you get to take care of yourself and focus on you. And she said, mm, I just, I don't feel right doing that. So many of us have lived in a transactional world for so long where we do something for something and they do something else for us and we need each other in this codependent way that when something else is offered to us, we struggle to imagine what that could look like. And so when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me, we're like, see, Jesus is being just like everybody else. He's being harsh. He's not doing that. Jesus' heart for you is for you to have the same relationship to God that he does. This union with Christ, oneness, connection, to know the living God and receive life from him. That is way more life-giving than the treadmill of shame, guilt, go back, get your debit card filled up. And the question that we have at the end of John chapter 6 is which kind of disciples are we going to be? Are we going to try to really work it out with the transactional way of being? Or are we going to be like Peter and say, I got nowhere else to go. You have the words of life. It's hard to imagine. That's not how we experience life. Like, like what we shared in, in, in the countries where missionaries serve, like it's dark. We live in dark places. But we can go into those spaces differently because we don't go alone. So we're going to take communion this morning. We're going to remember the gift he gave us, the cross, the shared life. And the fork at the road for us this morning is are we going to let the transactional life loosen its death grip on us and just receive? Are we going to just receive and say, all right, God, I'm tired of the effort. I'm tired of trying. I'm going to let you do this. I'm going to trust what you're doing. That's the fork in the road we all come to. Where are you going to go? You have a choice. You have agency. Do you, want to, do you want to keep slugging it out or do you want to receive? 
I'm going to pray. I'm just going to give you words that you can pray. There's nothing magical about this, but sometimes our imaginations just need to jump start. So as we take communion, I just want to give you these words. And if this, is, if this just reflects your heart, just receive that as a gift that God is working on you. And that's your identity. Father, I have been striving. And I've been striving to please you. I've been striving to know you. And it's been frustrating. God, this morning I cease striving. And I receive what you say. Your word is full of spirit and life, and I trust you. You have done for me what I could never do for myself. Please forgive me for trying to please you on my own. I receive this shared life. God, help me to live like that's true. In Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.